This is Market Ready, a brand new podcast about how companies bring products to market. On this season, we go behind the scenes and give you an in-depth look at the world of product marketing and answer questions like, what is product marketing? What are the core skills you need to be a product marketer? How is product marketing different at large and small companies? And so much more. But before we dive in, I am so excited to intro this show. This week, we have a jammed packed episode for you as we walk you through step by step how to plan a go to market strategy. We discuss everything from how to set goals to pricing your product to measuring your campaigns and even incorporating customer feedback in your messaging. This is an episode you don't want to miss and one you can refer back to again and again over time. And now on to our show. It's all about the GTM show. We've been talking about this for weeks and I'm so excited. Without further ado, let's jump into it. How do you create a go-to-market plan? So I, I think we should take it section by section. Let's do that. So the way that I actually uh, break mine down, the thing I start with is actually product definition. Mm-hmm. And I go into describing what are we launching? Yes. What problem is that solving of the product that we are launching? How is it solving the problem? And I actually link to product documentation. If there is any caveat, sometimes there's not product doc. Um, But I really like to start with defining the product. What about you? I agree. Um, That is product, having a really great product overview. Like even for some of this, you're also naming the product at the same time and you go to market. So you as the marketer are now calling this, you know, Whatever, Whatever, not an internal name. Exactly. Like <laughs> the code name goes away in the go-to-market and you're, you have your customer-facing name for this. Um, and it can include everything from, yeah, what are, what are the specific features we're going to build and why did we build this? Yeah. And then the next thing I actually like to do, I don't know about you, is actually define the type of release. And so before I even get into any of the other planning, is it a new product is it a feature enhancement? Is it just new packaging? Um, you know, are we mixing things up or creating a new solution with existing features? So that is the next thing I like to do before I actually even jump in to starting to define everything else. And then I like to define the target audience, which I think is the net. Now that we have defined what it is and what type of launch it is, then I go into you know, the target audience and is this existing customer base? Is this a new customer base and things of that sort? And that's where I feel like it's really important to get granular and get really specific. Mm -hmm. And then within that section, I also like to start laying out use cases, differentiators, and value proposition. You touched on a good point. Also, um, as a part of this, when you're laying this out, you also have to have a section for competitors. So what makes your product better or different or... Again, like where where do you have the room to play in this very crowded market? There's not very many places that are completely new greenfield. Um, so you have to come to the table of like what exactly are you offering and provide some um, insights on just the competitive overview. Who are those top folks? What are they doing? 
how are you how do you think you're going to be positioned different in the marketplace and um, what does this new product or feature bring to the table yeah and i want to be really specific just uh if we have anybody who's really new or trying to enter product marketing so we talked a little bit about target audience which is really who is it for and it's really important to define you know is this different regions or new audience but use cases i think we should really talk about in case anybody's not familiar with that term, a use case is simply how they are going to use it. And I always like to use an example of a car just because I think it's really simple. People have either been in a car or driven a car. So use cases might be if our product is a car, a use case is are you using that car to go to the grocery store? Are you using that car as like a race car driver, right? Those are very different use cases. So what you would be looking for if you're just taking it to do some local shopping might be, you know, trunk space, reliability, you know, a dent-proof bumper versus if you're using it as a race car, going zero to 100 is really fast, right? Aerodynamics is really fast. You're not stuffing the trunk. You're not weighing it down. You're not going to have a lot of people in it. Um, So that is a real kind of crisp example of what a use case is. How is a customer going to use your product? And then what are the differentiators? And I think differentiators are really tied to use cases in my mind. How is it different? And I think what you were starting to talk about differentiator really brings in that piece of knowing the market. You can't know your differentiators unless you know what else is out there. And then sometimes if you're creating a new product or new market, which happens to us sometimes, you have to actually think about your competitors maybe by use cases. You know, um, one of my favorite companies I love to talk about is Slack. And, you know, there's not a lot of direct competitors in the market, right? There's people who do some messaging and there's people who do some video calling and there's some people who do document sharing, right? So they have probably different competitors or different alternatives of what their customers could use by use case. But there's not a lot of platforms that are doing all of the pieces and parts that they play in. So I think that that's a real key example. And then I think as you do your research, like who are the market leaders? You know, I think it's really important and don't always necessarily take your company's word, right? Because your company might always think that you're a leader, but really be self-reflective of, Are you new to the market? Are you leading the way? Are you lagging behind? And what is this product launch going to do? Is it going to put you in parity with the market? Is it going to help you leap ahead of the market? Are you going to release something new and still be lagging behind? It's really important, I think, for a product marketer to really understand that landscape and understand the voice of the customer so you can reflect it accurately. That is correct. I would say this is something that we haven't, I think we've touched on in previous episodes, but as a product marketer, you're supposed to not only know your product back and forth, but know your competitor's product as well. So that means also signing up, get their emails, going through their whole sign-up flow, um, getting into their product and see what works really well. And get inspiration. Yeah, sometimes go into their conferences. Yeah. um, Recently, um, yeah, our competitive team tried to go to a competitor's conference and they actually got blocked. You know, that actually happens. Yeah. We we signed up for a lot of conferences. And I know when I first started here, we signed up for a competitor and they totally scrubbed us yeah. off their email list. They uninvited us to like some of their webinars. Um, so people are hip to that. So you can always use a personal email okay. uh, pro tip. Um, but I do think once you start to understand that and define that, then you start defining your value proposition to me is what's next. And do you want to talk a little bit about how you work on defining a value proposition or even what is a value proposition? 
I'll start from the very beginning. And your value proposition is essentially your message as to what value you're bringing to customers. So that means that it's everything from, you know, this value pop should basically tell your customers why should they use you? Yeah. Why should they choose you? Um, and so you're really in this very concise way. It, it's not going to be very lengthy. It's, it's supposed to be very crisp, maybe like a couple of sentences long. Yeah. That. Even one, if you yeah. can get it to if one or two, it's ideal. Exactly. Um, about why a customer should do it. Um, and like at Google, they say a lot, it's about knowing their product, knowing the customer, and um, the, the magic happens when you make that. Yeah. So it's just like, how, where, what is the magic of your product for what you guys created and for your customers and how you, are you bringing that magic together? Yeah. And what are they going to get? I mean, when I think of value, I really think it's what's in it for them. You know, what are you delivering from them? And then I don't know about you. When I start to set up, I know who my audience is. I know who my competitors are. I start to define my value proposition. Then I think about offensive and defensive statements. Do you do this? I have never done offensive and defensive. So how I define offensive and defensive statements is when you think about the value you're delivering and really kind of getting ahead of starting to prepare a pitch, an offensive statement, as I like to think about it, is a statement of how you would describe you, almost like a simplified elevator pitch that wouldn't mention your competitors or really not thinking about your competitive positioning. So almost like an offensive statement is like assuming you're number one. And a defensive statement is really to start to think about objection handling, which is like, why should I use you over your competitors? Um, And so just starting to think, even in the brainstorming process, like if I had to explain why we're good in a couple sentences, and then I had to explain why choose me over somebody else, I actually lay that out in my go-to-market plan. Oh, that's nice. Yeah, I've, um, I've seen the objective handling for mostly when we start to talk about sales enablement. Yeah. And when we get into that. Um, and so just building that out and like particular tip sheets and things that you might do. So that's going to be a part of like a deliverable that you might lay out yeah. in your go-to-market plan versus actually having it in there. So I really do. Yeah, I that. like the brainstorming because as you're even evangelizing, like, why is this exactly. good? And if that's not strong enough, you know, some of the questions that we have are always like, how do you start to integrate with product? And we're going to talk about you know, how you work with other teams. Right. But I do think if you are struggling and you work for your company and you know your product well, and you know your competitor's product well, and if you're really struggling in the brainstorm to start creating differentiators, to start creating offensive and defensive statements, to me, that's signaling. Yes. Is this strong enough? Is this strong enough for a release? Is it strong enough to be a big release? Do you need to go back to the drawing board and really counsel product or engineering like, hey, something's missing? Because I do think when you are working with your internal teams, you're advocating for the customer. Right. So like if you can't yeah. articulate it, it's going to be harder in a crowded market when people have so much coming at them for them to articulate it right. or for them for it to cut through the clutter. So I like to think about it. And then a big part, and I, I want us to do this justice, is pricing. pricing. And how do you handle pricing? Because that could be really difficult. And I do want to say this, too, because pricing sometimes falls in the PMM wheelhouse and sometimes it, it doesn't. doesn't. Yeah. Um, I always feel lucky when it doesn't because yeah. it's, it's its own it's beast. <laughs> We're not going to lie to you. Pricing <laughs> is very tough to nail. Yeah. Um, 
And so, and it comes with a lot, there's a lot of testing that goes into pricing even before we land on that final price. Or maybe even vendors and consultants, you know, I know we just started working with somebody new to just like look over a whole structure and how are we pricing and how are we packaging and does it make sense and let's do some market testing. I think you should be, unless your company is really, really early stage, I think as you get bigger and you start having more products in market, I definitely think you need to think about pricing strategies that make sense, that work together. If you needed to upsell somebody, it's very hard if your products have radically different pricing models. And so those are some things to think about. So in my actual go-to-market template, I look at what is the price or pricing structure. Um, I also ask, is this a change to current pricing? And then do you actually need new salesforce.com codes? It's a fair thing to ask or whatever system you're using, but Salesforce is the market leader. Um, And so a lot of sales teams are using that. So what is going to have to actually change for like sales operations and all of that and thinking about that and getting in front of it and making sure you're engaging the right team. So when your product launches, people can actually sell it and track it and billing is in place. And then do you need a new rate card to go along with sales and enablement materials, which is really important again, to deliver with the package, whether you own it or not being aware of pricing and being aware of how to educate people, because that's going to be part of the pitch about what the pricing is and thinking about cross sell and upsell and how does this work in the system of prices? Yeah. And I think that does go back and we'll, we'll touch on this too. Like, um, one of the things to consider as you're, as you're building out this product is like, how does it also play well, not just with, you know, um, how's it going to land in the competitive landscape, but how does it play well with your other products that you have in line? Yeah. Cause it's um, important. It is very important because if this is to your point earlier, um, the product considerations of what we're doing, like, is this a net new product yeah. or is this like just an addition? Is this an enhancement? Is this a, a pay feature? Yeah. So you have to really is it premium. Is it premium um, that we can get customers to pay for So, um, that is a really big thing when it comes to pricing because you want people to get bought into your ecosystem and right. stay with you as a customer. So and create you, that lock-in. Exactly. So are you having a pathway for the customers to come in at a specific price but maybe upgrade? Yeah. Or maybe they're already a free customer, especially if you have if your company has a freemium model. Yeah. Um, how are you trying to convert um, customers to actually pay for more value that you're adding to them? Yeah. Um, so those are a lot of things to consider. And this is where awareness pricing. of competitors, I think, is most exactly. important is when it comes to pricing, right? Because in industries, I think you can start to condition people that pricing structure should be a certain way for this industry. So for me, I spent a lot of my career in advertising technology. So, you know, media is often bought a certain way, which is by impressions, by reach, right? Right. Um, And now that I'm moving kind of more to software, SaaS is very different. Years, contracts, usage, seats, right? Like it's totally different than like media um, in a good and bad way, right? It can be kind of seen as like a lot of turnover, right? Because every time you do a new campaign, it's a different media buy, right? So it's a little bit of unpredictable revenue, whereas software or SaaS um, revenue is like longer contracts and it feels more stable, but at the same time, to get those contracts to close can take so long and to take, it could take over a year to close some SaaS contracts. And so 
what's nice about, you know, some of the things that we do is like we have both, right? So as a business, you can have some predictable revenue, but also if you have a shortfall and a gap, you can do some quick turn kind of media projects to pick it up. So understanding how they work together, understanding your business and, and, you know, how these pricing models impact your business, how they can forecast, especially if you are doing something longer term or contract or SaaS, how you're going to predict that funnel and when those contracts and that money flow is going to start to hit is going to be really important. But what I was saying about the competitive space is, you know, understanding your market position, I think is key here, right? Yes. Because there's a lot of signaling. You can be cost more than other people if you're the market leader. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if you're setting the price, if it's a clear differentiation, but if you're a new entrant, it may be really hard to come in and set the price super high, you know, even if you your price is higher. I think things like trials and freemium models and those things are going to be really key because nobody's going to lock into a one, two, three year contract and they don't even know what you can do for them and you're pricing radically different than the competition. So this is, I think it's, it's really important and, you know, hopefully you don't have to do it all. Hopefully there's at least finance people or some companies have pricing specific teams um, that work with you on these kind of questions. Cause pricing is a really big deal and affects a lot of, a lot of parts of the business. Yeah. There, there usually is a pricing team that will help you out or be there to help you run the numbers and go from there. At least in my experience, I've seen that and had somebody with there or we've had like an external agency as well yeah but typically there's an internal either finance or pricing um manager and analyst who can help along with that but i think jeanette you touched on something too the reason why pricing is important as it even as it relates to the competitive landscape is that you also don't want to get into a pricing war with competitors because for some especially if they are the market leader can meet you at a lower price if you're just really undermining the um, the marketplace and you don't want to get into that game because now it just goes well this one's cheaper this one's cheaper and going from there but you might as a part of your pricing strategy other things to consider is can we run a promotion at the time yeah Um, and a promotion is typically done to build awareness get initial customers in get them comfortable and especially if you are a new person um, to try you out before that price goes up Um, and they typically um, can be one of your best customers or stay with you for a really long time. So even if you do set a price, thinking through like a promotion strategy initially as you launch or have that for a set period of time, just to build that awareness, get people comfortable with it, using it Mm -hmm. before you um, ramp up, that's a consideration. The second thing is also partnerships. Yeah. So how do you look into, depending again, like how are you positioning this product into the marketplace? How are you leveraging partnerships? Because yeah. part of this could be, um, you know, we have this new feature and we're partnering with X company and we're going to, um, based on that, uh, there is a, um, you know, a combined pricing model between the two of us where we're going to share some um, revenues together. Um, but the value that the customer is getting is part of our, you know, our product features, this other partner's product features, and now we're coming together to create a, a unified thing. So you really have to think about, um, again, why it's so important to set what what the goal is, like yeah. what, what type of product are you building with the values for customers, because that does affect things like pricing when you are thinking about 
partnerships, promotions to build awareness and um, and setting that apart. Also, what you're trying to prove, I think it's it's good from that perspective too. I also think something I have done in my career and something I've been on the receiving end is giving a discount for marketing. Like, hey, if the test goes well, um, and I've typically worked at companies who are smaller or challenger brands, um, working and doing a, a bake-off, as we also call it, like let's do a head-to-head competition. Yeah, because it's like, hey, we are so confident. We will take on and let you try our product directly next to our competitor's product and you see what's better. That's how confident we are. And that's a good signal in the market. And also in addition to just freemium saying like, Hey, I want to be able to quote the stats. Like if they're good, I want to be able to tout the stats, whether I can use your company name or not, or I'll give you a discount for doing marketing with me in the market, or I'll give you a discount for a case study. Um, because proof points is a big thing. You know, if you can get a good name, yeah. If you can get a good name, if you can get an established name, talking about your actual successes and wins, that's going to sell other people. So if you're going to get, you know, get a discount, think about the value you're giving too. just saying, I'm going to give you a discount for a while and then raise the price doesn't always go well. So if you think about it in other things that can drive value for you and your business, it's another creative way to negotiate pricing. So what do you do when you actually land your first case study? We want to take a quick moment and spotlight the design tool, Canva. At Market Ready, we love Canva. It's a drag and drop design tool that gives you professional results. With over 65,000 templates and millions of photos to choose from, Canva makes it easy to design case studies, presentations, social media graphics, Zoom backgrounds, and so much more. They even make it easy to collaborate with other people by enabling you to share your designs with people in other states or even other countries. You can add up to 3,000 teammates, even on the free version, and you can even define smaller working groups within your teams. We use Canva all the time to create our social media graphics. We think the world of the tool and we're excited to share it with you. And now back to our show. So after I, I do all of that, I actually like to think about the release. And I don't know if you do this. So I actually start to have a plan where it's like alpha, beta, GA. And what are all of the phases? So I actually think about in the testing phase, which usually alpha is kind of like really small select group of friendlies or strategic partners who are going to try it. And then beta is like, we're kind of ready to release it to the world, but you don't want that to be a mistake. So you kind of make it a little bigger and say like, hey, we would do hundreds or thousands, maybe not everybody, depending on how uh, big your customer base is, but you would do a significant chunk of your customer base. It's almost public. And then GA is like, we're ready to flip the switch and release it to the world. So I actually, in my planning, I actually like to think about the release itself. Mm-hmm. What is the theme of the release? Who is going to be in all of these phases? So really defining what does alpha look like? Who's that small internal text group? What are we trying to test? Is like the, all the, the features working? Are the differentiators working? You know, how long does it take for people to use it? So work with your tech teams and understand what you're trying to test. And also think about those metrics. And I actually write down criteria to move to beta. What do we need to prove is working or not working before we will actually say we're ready to move the product into beta? And then I do the same thing for beta. Like, who is the customers? What are we trying to test? And what is the qualifications to say that this is ready for public use? 
And then at public use, what is the theme? Are we going after PR? Can we use any of these metrics we've collected in alpha and beta um, for sales? And then really defining success metrics of the loss. Uh, of the launch. And that can be in a number of ways. Are you working on trying to acquire new customers? Are you working on trying to drive usage? Are you working on trying to get paid subscribers? Are you working on people using a feature, staying in your product engagement times? So success metrics can really look differently. And I think it's really important to define that because if I'm just trying to drive number of users, my strategy for launch might be really different than if I'm trying to get paid users or I'm trying to upsell people, right? Is it quantity? Is it quality? Is it penetration in a user base? Because your marketing tactics and all of the pieces that move start to move in more traditional marketing at this point will really dictate how you handle that launch. I don't know about your thoughts about that. Yeah, um, I've seen this done a couple of different ways. Like, um, to your point, sometimes it is in that initial, like, go-to-market plan. Like, hey, here's our alpha, beta, then GA groups. Um, So, you know, what is the wave? Like, what is the rollout wave for this? Um, I've also seen it where product actually handles that, actually handles the alpha, beta groups, um, and uses it as a testing model. But me as a product marketer, I am checking in with them to say, hey, how's it going? Are these features coming along? Do we feel comfortable with the launch? Let me know. Um, And maybe using some of those initial and alpha and beta groups to um, pull out some initial use cases that I may want to use for the general rollout, Um, like either customer quotes or um, just overall sentiment um, that we could use um, for it as well. And then baking that into. Yeah. And then the last little piece I do is thinking about all of the pieces that I need to create. Right. So there is like the whole strategy of it. And then there is like the actual core marketing. So understanding if training is required again, because product marketing is so cross-functional. Sometimes we handle sales enablement and training. Sometimes there's actually a sales enablement and training team, which again, I always think it's lovely when there is a sales enablement team. Um, But for me, when I am thinking about my checklist under sales enablement, I think about making sure I have those messaging and talking points and the value prop that we talked about, the brainstorm. Are there FAQs that they need? Do they actually need, you know, competitive collateral? Are we doing battle cards? Are we showing how we measure up, whether that's an internal document or an external document? It's very rare that you see people wanting to release battle cards, but also be careful and be clear with your sales team because they'll love to send a battle card to show that we're we're better and you don't necessarily want that getting out in the market. Um, If there's any kind of implementation or onboarding things that they need, and then what kind of pitch decks do they need? I usually create a training deck and I usually create a different external deck that they can actually share with clients. Mainly the training deck will have more the insider baseball. It will have those battle cards and things that you want to educate them on, but you don't want them to share. Um, And then one pagers, if there's a demo script and thinking through all of those kinds of things for sales enablement. How about you? Is there anything that you add to that? Um, I go through, I have like a whole list of asset considerations that I may want to do, um, not only just for sales, but just also for um, our customer um, support team or customer success team. Um, 
going through that. And sometimes it's very similar to what we would create for sales, but the uh, customer support might even take it a click down. They might need even more training because these are going to be the first line of defense that customers are going to go to once they are using it. And so we need to train them. So it's again, like an FAQ page, um, the help center, like a yeah. help center um, website, um, that's going to be there. What numbers are they going to call if something happens as well? How do we redirect them? Um, and then making sure that for the internal customer support team, if there's a way for them to submit um, customer feedback around bugs or things that are not that need to yeah, be fixed. So that's that way great our one. product team is getting that as well. Um, then I look at it um, from the customer standpoint, just what are they going to need as well yeah. um, to get trained on this? So are we going to do video? Yeah, demo uh, videos. Exactly. Or, um, what about packaging mm-hmm. um, for particular um, products, whether that is a actual consumer product that is going to live live in retail or just um, in general, how are we going to package this up even online? What does that look like? Um are we going, like, what type of signage do we need? Um, online banners, videos, things, um, yeah. how that's going to look. Like, what are the things that we actually need to create in order to make this launch happen, um, depending on what channels that we're going to utilize as well. But just sort of, what are some things that you just need in general when you're going to go launch? And yeah. so a lot of that is, like, a video, um, a customer landing page site, um you know, what is uh, other signage one pagers that they're going to use too. Yeah. And again, I made a distinction earlier. Is there PR part of it or not? But if there's PR part of it, I also think, do you need to write blog posts or articles? Are you going to have pitch stories? Are you writing a press release? Are you reaching out to any analysts? Is this changing and thinking about analyst relations if it's not a separate person in team to say, how are we evolving this? Are, and I think analyst relations is a good you know, way to get your name out there in a way that's very different from PR. But, you know, if you're having a product release or something and analysts are about to write a report and staying on top of when those periodic reports and roundups of companies come out, I think is really great. And then I think you hit upon it social, which I feel like is, you know, kind of being a staple, you know, whether you even do the traditional PR or not. You know, social media, what what kind of social posting are you going to do? What's organic versus what's paid? I also think email campaigns or if you have any messaging within product, like the product experience might change. Mm-hmm. What kind of in-product, you know, modals, app cues, messages are you helping to guide people through a new experience as well? Which is becoming increasingly important, um, especially for... Um, tech products so just in general like SaaS across the board mobile apps having that in product um, lovers um, are important because those are one like essentially free yeah <laughs> and you're, you're you own it but that's going to be where the customers are going to go they're going to be in there yeah. hopefully daily um, but very frequently. And it also seems sometimes less overwhelming than a video or one sheet. You're giving it to me in smaller bites as I need it, as I'm going through the product. So I, I do think that's a helpful tool. And the very, very last thing I have in my go-to-market plan is business owners, which I don't think we talk about enough, but I actually list it in the plan yeah. and I make one person sign up <laughs> and is accountable for that department. It's like, who is the product go-to person? Who is the product marketing go-to person? Who's your sales or BD or demand gen, partner marketing, sales support, PR, but like actually go through and like, 
who are these people? And so if something is not going on track and something's getting off, you know exactly the point of contact to go to to interface with their department for this launch. Yes, I cannot, I cannot emphasize this enough. At LinkedIn, we have something that's called a rapid. And so that rapid has acronyms for each person. It's like, who's the decision maker? So the yeah. decision maker, who's like the final final, yeah. who just needs to stay informed, who's an approver, who's actually going to perform the task, and who's essentially like the the overseer of the entire project as well. Yeah. Um, so it's been called a number of different things. There's like rapid. Ra- racy. There's um, orps. Orbs, yeah, um, owner, approver, reviewer, yeah. participant. Yeah. So it's a lot of inside baseball for project management, but I think it's important to understand which acronym your company uses and mm-hmm. how do you sign people up for owner, approver, stakeholder, because it is. While I do have a key head to everything, your leadership for these departments, people who need to be informed or brought along the journey or see it and know about it, even if they're not participating, is important to know all those things. Yes, it is. Um, a couple of things that like, um, I also have in my go-to-market plan um, that you didn't touch on is like I also have MarTech considerations. Oh. So marketing um, technology that we may need um, for a particular product as well. So whether that's something that needs to actually be built into the product so that way we're able to track customers from beginning to end um, as they like first initially come in and then as they become users and tracking their life's, um, life, um, life cycle as a yeah. customer. So I also have MarTech considerations in there because you may need to work with a marketing analyst or uh, some other analyst that's on there that can really track them. So how did they come in? What channel did they come yeah. in? Yeah. Um, so that way you can know what will... What, where, what channel was the most engaged? Was it social media? Was it search? Um, was it um, referral links? So you're able to really track them from the very beginning when these campaigns go out um, and follow your customers from the start all the way to when um, they actually convert to become a customer. And then once they are a customer, what their usage is. So that's one thing um, I will add to our um, to our go to market discussion about there's a section that I I usually include on there. Yeah, I think it's my favorite time. Questions. Mm-hmm. So the first question, and I think we go, went over and touched a lot of uh, parts and pieces, but it's you know they're really looking to understand a plan or strategy to how to position a product competitively, and they gave some examples: pricing, customer pain point customer analysis or segmentation. Um, So what I took from that is we've talked about the planning of those pieces. I really want to be specific for this question of like, how do you position something competitively? And they talked about um, a, a couple of examples. What I would say is this goes really back to key differentiators. And so Hopefully you are partnering with your product team and you're making sure that you are bringing a product to market that is filling a pain point. And it should be a combination of what pain point are you filling and how are you doing that remarkably differently? You know, there should be either your company, you know, has a great suite of assets and things work better together is one kind of positioning. Um, It could be you have a data set, you have a technical feature or something that moves faster, that delivers better. So it's really going to be 
whatever the facts are about your product. And again, I think you should be working with your product team and be evaluating if you're having trouble articulating the competitive difference or advantage. You guys really need to look at that. But your company in general should know and should exist for a reason because there's a pain point not being met or you are doing it, you know, better, faster, more affordable. Yes, I agree. I think going through the exercise of really thinking about um, how you're positioning yourself. So again, like, what is that value prop? Who is that target audience? What What is going to make them really say, like, this is a game changer. I right. need to sign up and get this product now. Um, what are the benefits? What are those claims? Um, you know, and even thinking through, like, what would prevent them from buying your, your particular product? And how can you clearly articulate that, too, about, like, hey, here are the barriers, but here's how you can overcome those barriers to use our particular product as well. Um, I think a lot of that ties into that is of, of going through that exercise with your product team and really understanding, hey, yeah, what, what is and the, talk what to is, your yeah. customers, the people who are paying to use your product now. Talk to them. Talk to them about why they like it. Talk about to them why they chose it over other products. Talk about what is painting them like sit there and actually do something revolutionary go out in real life and sit with your customers for a day understand their business understand their needs understand their needs and how that might differ by industry or by size or by customer profile and that will start helping you address it I know I get a wildly different perspective when I actually get from the walls of my company and go sit with customers yes at Intuit this was really big Um, we actually had this whole concept called follow me homes where you were required to go to a customer's home or place or business and see how they utilize the product yeah see in their everyday life this is how I use it and you got to you saw so I saw so many different ways to use our product that I never would have imagined yeah because oftentimes like as a product as a product marketer and you're sitting with like your product team you think of like oh this is how customers are going to use it yeah and you have like this kind of fantasy of like (laughs) they're going to do it this exact way all this every single time and then you go and you talk to customers and you realize like there are a hundred different ways that customers are you discover new product. use cases, which is, I think, really cool. You know, we're currently using a product. Our recruiting team is using a tech product. And we talk to them and they're like, we never imagined this use case. And we're like, this is our core bread and butter use case. So you never know. And I think it's really eye-opening. But so, I think I like the point, too, of how you touched on about actually going to talk to customers. Yeah. Because having those alpha beta groups beforehand, you can put things in front of them and get their feedback. Like, does this you messaging resonate. resonate with you? Does yeah. this tagline resonate with you? Like, sometimes marketers, we get into our own heads sometimes <laughs> and we're so crafty with our words and we think like, oh, this is going to be a game changer. Yeah. And then you put that in front of your customer. They're like, I have no clue what you meant. Yeah. Like, and they're like, or what I really love is it's easy to use. Right. And you're like, oh. <laughs> just keep it simple. Like, we try to keep all these words and it's just like, no, you don't need to do all that. Just state it simply. Use the words that they're using as well, and they will give you that feedback. So I think the second question I think is a good follow-on is something we really didn't talk about, is localizing marketing language or strategy for dis- different customer segments or regions. I actually think this is really important. Um, we're actually important. working on rolling out something now, and we're a global company. Um, and it was really interesting to talk to our product and engineering team that thankfully know our business well. And they're like, hey, 
Japan buys and uses and understands the product very differently and they're very detailed versus other regions like in the U.S. So like if you have something that vaguely doesn't apply, it won't bother most people. They'll click the button anyway. In Japan, that won't fly. So like understanding those nuances and also really thinking about how you're translating. I often recommend there are professional companies who do it and you should because it's not always translating language literally, but understanding phrases and clauses and how that goes together and making sure you're not offending. I would definitely say if it, if you're in multiple languages in multiple locations and you don't have in-country native speakers that are going to help with translation, you definitely want to hire a professional company because it's, it's, it's more than translation. Localization is very different from translation, which is getting it in the same context and spirit. So I'll touch on this in two different ways. One, like, and I don't, I don't know about your experience, but for me, how I've seen like a go-to-market strategy laid out, and especially when it's coming from headquarters, is that like you'll create the go-to-market strategy just like overall. Yes. And then you will work with your, um, if you have counterparts in yeah, different regions, locals. Um, mm-hmm. you will work with them on that launch in their particular region. Yes. Um, and so oftentimes it will be like just an overall strategy from like, um, from headquarters of like this is you know generally how it's going to be and then they put the onus a lot a lot of times on local PMMs in those markets yeah. to say like hey you know how does this work out and sometimes your messaging and positioning that you created in America is not going to work in EMEA or APAC or yeah. an American or it's Actually, a different competitive set exactly it's a completely different competitive set um, and so your messaging may and positioning may have to change um, so for example, when I was working on Chromecast, um, one of the things in the U S is like our main competitors back then were, you know, Amazon and people knew what a dongle was, but in Korea, when we launched, like our competitors were set top boxes, right? Wow. So things that had just already been in people's homes. And so they didn't want to change the way that they were utilizing. Right. And so it was different than saying, Hey, you know, why use this? Why we're better than like an Apple TV or Roku. Now we have to completely change how we're talking about it and um, talk about this cool, fun way to cast stuff from your phone. But people have this cheap, you know, (laughs) boxes that they could use. It's like, why do I need to change? Um, So I think just being really aware of, um, Yes, you, you may create like a go-to-market strategy, but that is it can completely change, including pricing, your messaging, positioning for the different regions. And to Jeanette's point about localization is that oftentimes you are going to need those people who are on the ground yeah. and understand slang words yes. um, that can be used because sometimes that translation doesn't, doesn't it, it doesn't work. Yeah. You know, I mean, you think about our own idioms or if you think about... English, we do a lot of sports analogies and stuff that people get, which is like may not be global sports and stuff like that. So, you know, trying to be literal, but also even thinking about, you know, colors and facial images when you start digging into the world of localization is very interesting how there's a lot of things that don't translate. And there's a lot of nuance, especially if you have local images or, you know, video or where you have multi-dimensional things. It's not just a one sheet or a piece of paper. You really need to be cognizant of like people's facial expressions and what they're wearing and the setting behind them because all of that is is signaling and can be different. 
So next time, uh, because go-to-market is so important, we're actually going to talk about how to execute a go-to-market. Today was all about planning, but go-to-market is so important that we really felt like we needed two, not one, but two episodes. And so we're going to talk about uh, managing those key stakeholders, project updates, what happens when things don't go to plan. (laughs) They hardly ever go to plan. Um... Yeah, and and what if you're a PMM who doesn't own GTM? So we're also excited about part two. So not only just thinking about conceptually what it is, but we're going to roll up our sleeves and get into how does it actually work, which I think is going to be really exciting. All right, so until next time. Thank you. This show was produced by the Market Ready team. Sound mixed and edited by Full Spectrum Productions with original music from Damani Rhodes. Thank you again for listening and feel free to connect with us at Market Ready Podcast on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn.